Since it's Memorial Day weekend, let's just uh, pause for a moment and bow together in prayer. Will you do that with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your presence today. And as we come to you, we are so grateful that you are a God who loves us so much that you are willing to make a great sacrifice for us. Of course, I'm talking about your willingness to send your son into the world to take our place on the cross, pay the penalty for our sin. You understand the depth of sacrifice. And on this weekend in our country where we remember so many who've made those similar kinds of sacrifices, given their lives for the benefit of others, we pray your blessing on their memory and their families and those who may still even mourn their loss. We're grateful, Father, to be citizens of the United States of America. We're grateful to be uh, privileged to be a part of this country. We know it's not perfect and There are many flaws, but we're so very thankful. And so this weekend, I pray that you'd help all of us to pause at some point to remember that uh, freedom comes with a price um, and uh, that we would appreciate that. Be thankful. We love you and we are grateful for all that you do for us. Together we pray all this is one heart and one voice and we ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone agreed and said... Amen. Hey, grab a Bible if you got one and go with me to Matthew chapter 22 as we continue our verse-by-verse journey through the gospel of Matthew called Let's Talk About Jesus. And this weekend we come to an interesting passage of Scripture that once again exposes the depravity of the religious leaders and the righteousness of Jesus. I want to welcome everybody who's joining us online this morning, wherever you might be. Thanks for being willing to tune in and be a part of our service today. The passage of Scripture I'm talking about is Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 45. And honestly, if you open up your Bible and you look at it as a whole, it looks like it's three different passages of Scripture. But it's really, it's really one. And it's one because all of these passages are tied together by a single verse. It's Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. Just look at that single verse there. Our entire study this morning begins with these words, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Let me give some context for that, and I apologize because for many of you this is going to be repetitive, but it's Wednesday of the last week of Jesus' life. And so far, in the last week of Jesus' life in Matthew begins in Matthew chapter 21, and so far as we've gone through this part of the gospel, we've seen the triumphal entry, we've seen Jesus cleansing the temple, we've seen Jesus cursing a fig tree, we have seen this tense confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders that takes place in the temple. These religious leaders have always been angry with Jesus, and they are furious with him now because primarily of what he did when he cleansed and he cleared the temple, when he drove out all those who were buying and selling from the temple. And so they confront him in that same temple later when Jesus is preaching and teaching, and they demand that he tell them where he gets the authority to do the things that he does. These guys hated Jesus for a number of different reasons, but primarily because he exposed their self-centered, self-righteous hypocrisy. And so they confront him. But here's what Jesus does. How many of you know nobody ever confronts Jesus? He's always in control of the events of his life. And so he turns the table on them and he confronts them and he confronts them with three parables about judgment. And each one of the parables is is directed solely at them. And so what do they do? And we studied those parables in the last few weeks, and they're serious, sobering parables about judgment, the judgment of God. So what do they do? Well, rather than humble themselves in the presence of Jesus and say, what do we need to do to get our lives right with God so we avoid this judgment that's coming our way, they huddle together and they come up with this 
plan to try to trap Jesus with his words. And that decision reinforces two things about the religious leaders. Number one, they're a long way from God. We talked about this last week, and I told you it's possible to be religious. It's possible to be super religious and still be a long way from God. How many of you know that's true? And it's still true in Matthew chapter, in, in, in 2019 in the United States of America, as it, it's just as true today as it was in Matthew chapter 22. If God is not interested in people who are just going through the external motions of living a religious life, God is interested in, in the heart and what's going on inside of us. And so that's the first thing. The second thing this is exposes about the religious leaders is that they're desperate. At this point in their, in their relationship with Jesus, they're desperate. And I say that because what they really want to do is they want to arrest him. They just want to get him out of circulation. I say that because right after Jesus tells the second parable about the coming judgment, this is what we read in Matthew 21, verses 45 and 46. I'll put these words up on the screen. When the chief priests and the Pharisees, that's the religious leaders, heard this, or excuse me, heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them, and they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. They couldn't arrest him, and so they go back to something they've tried before, even though it's never worked, and they try to trap Jesus in his words with what they think are three clever questions, the first one about paying taxes, the second one about marriage at the resurrection, and the third one about what is the greatest commandment? Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about all of this today, okay? This is a lengthy passage of Scripture, so obviously I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each one of these things, but we're going to talk about all of this today. We're not going to read the whole passage together when we stand, but we're going to talk about all of this today. And here's my goal. As we go through each one of these questions, my goal is for you to learn some truth about God, some theology, some truth about God, and my goal is for you to learn some practical truth just about everyday life and living as a Christian. So having said that, if you've got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 22 and you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. I said I'm not going to read the entire passage, so let's just go all the way down to the last confrontation, the last question, Matthew chapter 22. This is the most familiar part of this passage that we're going to look at, and let's read verses 34 through 40. You follow along. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All right, there it is. You can be seated and we always, always, always Pray for God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. Do you notice you have an outline in your bulletin insert today? It's not very clever. In fact, it's not clever at all, but it'll help us navigate these verses. If you're someone who likes to take notes, write down next to number one, paying taxes. That sounds interesting, doesn't it? Paying taxes. Verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. All right, a couple of things right from the beginning. Notice that, it, that the Pharisees sent their disciples 
to ask Jesus this first question along with the Herodians. Why? Well, the Pharisees knew that they couldn't approach Jesus with this question because a part of their strategy with this question was to begin by flattering Jesus, thinking that would somehow sway Jesus and make him vulnerable, even though that never works with Jesus. Among the religious leaders, the Pharisees were the greatest enemies of Jesus, and Jesus would have known who they were. He would have known most of the Pharisees. And even if there was a Pharisee that he didn't recognize by face, he would have recognized that they were a Pharisee by the way that they dressed. I don't have time to explain that to you. You'll just have to trust me on that. And so, rather than going to Jesus themselves, the chief enemies of Jesus among the religious leaders, the Pharisees sent their disciples. They also sent the Herodians, which was unusual because the Herodians and the Pharisees were not normally allies. They were not normally collaborators. In fact, just the opposite was true, and they were almost always at odds with each other. But how many of you know that oftentimes when you have a common enemy, it will bring together people who can't stand each other? They would never be together in any other setting, but if there's a common enemy, it will bring them together. And Jesus was their common enemy. And so they came to him and they said, teacher, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And let's just acknowledge from the beginning that those words are dripping with insincerity. They don't mean a single thing that they're saying. Jesus knows it, and that's why he responds the way he does in verse 18. You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? And then Jesus goes on to give a very common teaching, or, or common sense rather, teaching about the legitimate obligation, you could even say the divinely ordained obligation of every person to pay taxes to whatever government is over them. Now, the specific tax that they're talking about in this conversation was a tax called the poll tax, P-O-L-L, the poll tax. The Romans levied lots of taxes on the Jews, but this is the poll tax that they're talking about. And the poll tax was particularly offensive to the Jews because the only way you could pay a poll tax was with a certain coin that was minted by the Romans, and it was a coin called a denarius. And the denarius was offensive to the Jews because on one side was the engraving of the face of Caesar, on the other side was the engraving of Caesar sitting on his throne wearing priestly robes. And every time a Jew would see a denarius, it would remind them of the oppression that they lived under by the Romans. It would remind them that they were under the thumb of the Romans. And so this was a very, very emotional issue for the Jews, the paying of this poll tax. But here's the thing. Jesus knew. Jesus knew that with everything bad about the Jewish people being under the rule of the Romans, that there were some positive things that the Romans afforded the Jews. There were some valuable services that the Romans provided for the Jews. I'm talking about things like roadways. I'm talking about things like aqueducts that gave everyone access to water. Most important, I'm talking about peace. If you lived that Rome was the most powerful nation or country in the world at this period in history, and if you lived under the rule of the Romans, you lived for the most part at peace. You enjoyed peace. You weren't going to war all the time against different countries. And so Jesus says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God 
what is God's. And here's the lesson. I said it a moment ago, but I'm going to say it again for reinforcement. Every person has the responsibility and the obligation to pay taxes to whatever government is over them. And listen to me close, even if you don't agree with everything or most things even that the government does. Why do I say that? I say that because Jesus doesn't qualify his statement. He simply says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But he doesn't qualify the statement. He could have. He could have talked about how the fact that Rome was a blasphemous, pagan, idolatrous government. But he didn't say that. He just said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And I want you to understand something, friends, and this is the theology, this is the truth about God that I want you to understand, the truth about God's teaching. Submission to government is a consistent teaching from God. Submission to government is a consistent teaching of the Scripture. We find it not just in Jesus' words here in Matthew 22, but we find it in other places in the Bible as well. In fact, I'll put some verses up on the screen. First of all, Romans chapter 13, this is going to be verse 1 and then verses 5 through 7. Let me just read these words. Everyone, everyone say everyone, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. Now, note this. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone, you, give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. That's Paul from Romans chapter 13. How about the apostle Peter from 1 Peter chapter 2? This is verses 13 through 15. Peter says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Submission to government is a divine truth from God for all of us is found throughout the scriptures. This instruction is found throughout the scriptures. Now, everybody look at me for a moment. Let me just say something. I don't like everything that our government does, do you? And oftentimes, I am deeply distressed by the lives and the conduct of those who govern. But this is a divine principle from God that must be obeyed. And if there's one thing that we learn from the Scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, if you're a student of the Old Testament on any, any level, is that God has a history of using over and over again, of using some of the most ungodly, unrighteous, idolatrous, pagan, and blasphemous people to accomplish His purposes in the world. Why? Because God is always in control, and somebody should say amen to that. No matter what it looks like to you and me, God is always in control. And that's the truth about God that we need to learn from this Scripture. Let me give you a practical truth before we move on to the second question. The practical truth when I look at this passage is this. Don't be fooled by flattery, the flattery of men, because Jesus wasn't. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about flattery, and I want you to listen to me. All of it's bad. All of it's bad. 
The Bible talks about flattery with regard to adultery. The Bible talks about flattery with regard to false teachers. The Bible talks about flattery with regard to lying. Everything the Bible says about flattery is bad. The biggest problem with flattery from a biblical perspective is that it's not based on truth. It's not based on honesty, but it's honesty. It's honest words that are pleasing to God. And that's what we need to remember in our communications with one another. Honest words are pleasing to God. Look at these words on the screen from Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 13. In fact, read these words with me. Let me hear your voices. The king is pleased with words from righteous lips. He loves those who speak honestly. And that's not flattery. It's not flattery. There are people who will come and flatter you and tell you what they think you want to hear to try to take advantage of you, to try to advance their own agenda with you. But you need to be discerning when it comes to people like that. Jesus was. He's our example. God values truth. And so we need to be discerning when it comes to the words of others. And we need to avoid falling into the trap of not speaking the truth to someone as well. Then there's the second question right down next to number two. <clears throat> this is a different kind of a message than what we normally preach. But there's a second question, marriage at the resurrection. And we see that in verses 23 through 33. Let me just read those words quickly. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. And then they tell this story. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Now, I'm going to pause there and say, you would think at some point someone would recognize that this woman is not good luck. How about, how about that? <laughs> this is not looking good. <laughs> you know, this is, but anyway, that's beside the point, I guess. <laughs> they go on. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? Now it's the resurrection, which, by the way, these guys didn't even believe in. And all eight of them are there, the woman and all seven husbands. Whose wife is she going to be? Verse 29, Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scripture or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at this teaching. All right. So the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians come with their question. They fail. And so now it's the Sadducees' turn. Let's talk about the Sadducees for a moment. Now, in Jesus' day, in Israel, during Jesus' day, there were many different religious sects. Now, stop. S-E-C-T-S. -E Got that? Okay? And this has troubled me all week. Okay? Now, when I use the word sect singularly, I can pronounce it in a distinctive way, sect. But when you use it, use it plurally, there's just no way. It just sounds like sex. And that always brings back some horrific flashbacks for me because when I was a little boy, I used to go to church camp. And I loved church camp. I hope your kids have gone to church camp or are going to church camp. And every year at church camp, I knew there was going to be an evening where there was going to be a Bible trivia competition. And I owned that competition, folks. <laughs> I was very competitive and I owned it. And one year, there was a question asked that used this word sex, S-E-C-T-S. -E and I gave a very embarrassing answer that people are probably still laughing about today. <laughs> so I'm trying hard to make, be distinctive about this. In Israel, during Jesus' day, there were many religious 
sects. Let's just use the word denominations, okay? How about that? There were many different religious denominations. Now, we're familiar with the Pharisees because they were the largest, but the Sadducees were also one of these denominations. They were the smallest, but they were usually, oftentimes, the most powerful. Now, I can't give you a detailed explanation of that. I don't have time, but they were the aristocrats of the Jewish religious world because they were wealthy, and they were wealthy primarily because they had oversight of the temple and all the operations of the temple. I want you to hang on that for a minute. From a theological standpoint, the Sadducees were very liberal, and the most distinctive thing about them is they didn't believe in anything supernatural. They didn't believe in angels, and they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. But here they are asking Jesus a question about the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead because for some reason they gave great weight to the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, you probably know this, but when you put all those five books together, there's a word that we use to describe them. It's called the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch are the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They gave great weight to the Pentateuch, almost to the exclusion of the rest of the Scriptures. And since in the Pentateuch there was no direct teaching about the resurrection, they chose to not believe in the resurrection. Everyone follow me? Say yes. Okay. All right. So... They come to Jesus with a question. Oh, by the way, up to this point in Jesus' life, they'd given really no attention to Jesus like the other religious leaders had. But when Jesus entered Jerusalem on, on that triumphal entry, they paid attention to him because the crowd shouted out, Hosanna to the son of David. And I don't know if you remember or not, but I told you son of David was the most common Jewish term for the Messiah. And so they were saying, Hosanna to the king. And that got their attention. Hosanna to the coming king, the Messiah. And that got their attention. And the second reason why they paid attention to Jesus when he was in Jerusalem is because you remember what he did after the triumphal entry? He went into the temple and he cleared it. And he cleared it by driving out all those who were buying and all those who were selling. And that was a direct affront to the authority of the Sadducees. And what's more, when Jesus did that, he put his hand in their pocket and took money out of it. Now, how many of you know that you, you, we know, you can tell what somebody's really about? You can, the character of somebody's life is always exposed when it comes to money. And so, now they're paying attention to Jesus, and that's why they're a part of this whole foolish effort to try to trap him with their words. And so, they come with this question. They begin first with flattery, not on the level of the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians, but they begin with the word teacher. And they didn't care anything about Jesus as a teacher. They didn't care about anything uh, that he had to say. It was just condescending to them. And then they asked this ridiculous question about the resurrection. But Jesus didn't flinch. How many of you know Jesus never flinches? He never, ever flinches. And he gives the perfect answer. I'm going to summarize the answer like this. He says, you couldn't be more wrong because you don't know the Scripture and you don't know the power of God. Let's talk about those two things in reverse order. He said, you don't know the power of God. In Matthew 22:30, 30, Jesus says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage, they will be like the angels in heaven. Now, I'm going to pause here for a moment and tell you that over the years, I've had lots of conversations with people about this verse of Scripture and what it means. And this passage, this verse is very troubling to a lot of people because it's hard for us to imagine not being married, whether we're talking about here on the earth or in heaven with the spouse that we treasure. 
I can tell you this morning that my 37-plus year marriage to my wife, Sandy, is the single greatest earthly blessing of my life. And I know many of you would say the same thing about your marriage. It is the single greatest earthly blessing of my life. And it's hard for me to imagine a life where I wasn't married to her, whether it's in this world or it's in the world to come. And so this is troubling for some people. But here's what we need to remember and here's what we need to understand. Heaven and earth are two separate things, friends. Jesus says we'll be like the angels in heaven. He doesn't say we'll be angels in heaven. He said we'll be like the angels. What does that mean? I don't have time to give you a complete answer, but let me just tell you this. It means in heaven you and I are going to be completely changed and we're going to be completely transformed. While we're here in this world, we are earthly, we are natural, and our lives are temporary. When we are in heaven, we will be glorified, we will be spiritual, and we will be eternal. And as a result, our existence will be different. The relationship of marriage is, or, is divinely ordained. The, rela- ordained. the relationship of marriage is beautiful. The relationship of marriage is satisfying and fulfilling on every level. It is the deepest of all human relationships. But it is earthly, which means it is e. It is temporary and not eternal. In heaven, we're going to be spiritual. Our nature will be spiritual. And all of us, every one of us in heaven will be equally glorified, will be equally eternal, will be equally and perfectly related to everyone else, including the living God. And so, our lives in heaven will be different than they are here in this world. And that is the teaching about God because that is all going to be the result of the power of God. Now, if that's troubling or disconcerting to you in any way, shape, or form, then let me just add this one thing before I move on. If there is one word we were going to use to describe heaven, just one word, then this would be the word. We would use the word perfection. Perfection. And because heaven is going to be a place of perfection, there is nothing for us to be anxious about. There is nothing for us to fear. Our perfect living God will make it a perfect eternal experience for all of us, and we believe that's true. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. And so that's the truth that we need to understand about God. Then, second, Jesus told them, you don't know the Scriptures. Not only do you not know the power of God, you don't know the Scriptures. Look back at verses 31 and 32. He said, but about the resurrection of the dead, which is something that they didn't believe in, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. I'm going to do this quickly, or try to do this quickly. They didn't believe in the resurrection. But if you're a student in the Old Testament, you know that multiple times in the Old Testament, God makes this same statement. He says it over and over again. He said, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. Who are those men? They're the patriarchs of the Jewish faith, right? It all began with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. I'm the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, and I'm the God of Jacob. Now, Jesus uses that statement to them to show them the reality of the resurrection because he says, we just read this in Matthew 22, 32, he is not, Jesus says about God, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, let me explain that to you. The first time God makes this statement about being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, when God speaks to Moses through the burning bush. Everybody remember that? And when God speaks to Moses through the burning bush in Exodus 3, 6, this is what we read. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. First time, first time God says that, Exodus chapter 3 
and verse 6. Exodus is a part of the Pentateuch that the Sadducees revere, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so Jesus looks at the Sadducees and he says, your scriptures, the books that you hold sacred, the Pentateuch, Teach the truth of the resurrection because God has said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he makes that statement in the present tense. So if he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all men who had physically died when God first made the statement in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, then those men must be alive today in another realm of life. And they are. It's in the resurrection of the dead. And that's the theological truth. That's the truth about God that I want you to understand. He is the God of the living because even those who have died, when they die with faith in God, experience the resurrection to a new life. Now, here's the practical truth, okay? So we've seen the truth about God with regard to marriage, the truth about God with regard to the resurrection. Real quickly, here's the practical truth. And I'll just focus on one thing Jesus said to the, to the Sadducees. He said, you don't know the Scriptures. And here's the practical truth I want to leave you with. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to live and experience the, God, the life that God has for you, then you must be a student of the Bible. You must know the truth of God's Word. You know, I told you about I, I was a, when I was a boy, I went to church camp every summer. One of the first verses that I memorized as a boy, I memorized at church camp. It was Psalm 119, verse 105, and I memorized it in the King James Bible. And this is what it says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light into my path. That means the Bible guides us in our lives. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to be Christians, then we've got to decide what's going to be the authority for our lives. And it'll be one of two things. It'll either be God, it'll be the Word of God, or it'll be the world. So what are we going to pay attention to? What are we going to make sure that we know when it comes to living our lives and making decisions in our lives? What are we going to pay attention to? Well, if you choose the Word of God, then great. But if you choose the opinions of the world, then you need to understand two things. Number one, they are temporary because the Bible says that everything about this world and everything associated with this world is passing away. First John two seventeen says, the world and its desires pass away. The second thing you need to understand is that the opinions of the world constantly change. I'm, I've lived long enough in my life to know that's true. What's right today What's proper today, what's acceptable today will not be the same tomorrow at some point when it comes to the opinions of the world. And so if you try to build your life on the opinions of the world, you're trying to build your life on a shifting foundation, and that won't work. It won't work for you, and it won't work for anyone. We need to choose God's Word as the source and the authority for our lives. So we need to know God's Word. And when we choose God's Word, we're choosing a truth that doesn't change. That means what God said was right in the past is still right today. And what God said was wrong in the past is still wrong today, regardless of public opinion or media or anything else, culture, anything else that tries to speak into that. God's Word never changes. It will always be true. Think of it like this. God set up and built the universe around certain laws, physical laws, moral laws, and spiritual laws. And he did this for our benefit. That means when we reject God's law, whether it's a physical law, a moral law, or a spiritual law, then we're the ones that are going to get hurt. When you reject God's laws, you're going to get hurt. Here's a great quote from Rick Warren. He says, you don't ever break God's laws, they break you. And then he goes on to say, if I go up on top of a building and jump off, I don't break the law of gravity. The law of gravity breaks me. 
And the same is true with moral laws and spiritual laws. You can't thumb your nose at God and get away with it. There's inevitably a reckoning. Anytime you violate God's principles, you're asking for trouble. Now, friends, having said all of that, I hope you see how important it is for us to know the truth of God's Word. Jesus looked at the Sadducees and said, you don't know the truth of the Scripture. You don't know God's Word. And so your life is built on something that's false. You have a false belief system, and that's never going to work out good for you. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you need to know the truth of God's Word. All right, number three. I got three minutes. Think I can do it? I'll tell you in advance. I can't. I can't. There's no way, but I'm going to try. Write down next to number three. The third question, just write down the words, the greatest commandment. We already read that passage, so we won't read it again. So uh, now it's the, the, the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians failed, the Sadducees failed, and now we come back with the Pharisees. Now, the, you know what? I was reading this passage, and this is what it reminded me of. When I was a boy growing up in Oklahoma, <clears throat> and I don't, I'm, I'm not old, but I'm old enough to know that there was a time when there were only three television channel stations that you could watch on TV. There's no cable or satellite or anything. There's just three channels. And then you might have some local channels that you could watch. And every Saturday when I was a boy growing up in Oklahoma, there was a local channel at 5 o'clock on Saturday that would show semi-professional wrestling. Did you ever watch any of that semi-professional wrestling? That was fascinating to me when I was a little boy because there are grown men running around in leotards. And some of them had masks on, and they had long hair, and they were just bizarre. Everything about it was bizarre, and they had the coolest names. My favorite wrestler when I was a little boy was called Handsome Ronnie Reed. I thought if you could grow up and you had the word handsome in front of your name, you were the coolest person that ever lived. <laughs> handsome Ronnie Reed. He was my favorite wrestler. And my favorite wrestling matches were the tag team matches. You know what I'm talking about? So you get in the ring, and you mix it up, but when you got beat up or you got tired, you tag the next guy, and he was in. Then tag the next guy in Houston. And these guys, these guys are tag teaming Jesus. That's what's happening here. The Pharisees' disciples and the Herodians and the Sadducees announced the Pharisees again. But Jesus doesn't flinch. And now they try to get him in some ideological debate over whether some of God's commandments are more important than the others. And so an expert in the law asks him this question, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies, this is verses 37 through 40. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Let's make this real simple. Jesus is saying there are two supremely important commandments in the Christian life. And if you miss these two, you miss everything. And those commandments are love God with everything inside of you and love others like you love yourself. If you miss those two, friends, no matter what else you do when it comes to your life of faith, you've missed everything. You tithe, but if you don't love God and love others, you've missed it. You go to church every week, but you don't love God, you don't love others, you've missed it. You spend your entire life avoiding the things that don't honor God, but you don't love God, you don't love others, you've missed it. Loving God, loving others are the top priorities of the Christian life. And when you have those two priorities, priorities in place, everything else falls in place. What do I mean? Well, if you love God and you love others, then you're going to obey God. If you love God and you love others, you're going to be committed to living a holy life. If you love God and you love others, you'll live a generous life. You'll control your anger, your tongue. You'll forgive people when they offend you. You'll feed the hungry. You'll encourage the discouraged. And I could go on and on and on. Loving God and loving others motivates you to live the life that God has called you to live. And here's what I want you to understand. Jared, you can come and we'll bring this to a close. On this third question, the, the, the truth about God, the theology part... And the practical truth, they're one and the same. They're not separate. You have two great priorities in your life if you're a Christian. 
loving God with everything that you are and loving others in the same way that you love yourself. Now, let me just close like this. I would imagine that everybody in this room this morning and everybody who's watching me online, if we were to be honest, we would say that we've got areas in our lives where we need to make improvements in all kinds of ways. We could say, I should be more consistent in my life. I, I, I should be less lazy. I, I, I talk too much and I don't listen enough. I, I gossip. I, you know, we can make a long list. And, and you, we could all make a list of the things we need to improve. Some of us you know, could look at a long list that was compiled by a bunch of other people and say all of the above. We've all got areas in our lives where we need to improve. But when we think about improvement in our lives, at the very top of the list, we should put these two things. Number one, I need to love God more. You can't go wrong if that's your commitment. I need to love God more. And then let that overflow into the way you live your life. And number two, I need to, le- to love others the same way that I love myself. I need to give myself away for the benefit of others. I look at this passage of scripture and I see the evil, dark hearts of the religious leaders trying to attack Jesus. But what I see in the end is Jesus stands firm. Jesus never flinches. And that's why we fix our hearts and our minds and our eyes on Jesus always because Jesus, how many of you know Jesus will never let you down? No matter what, Jesus will never let you down. Jesus always stands strong, always.